So we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews, and I would invite you to turn there into Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we could find you one. We'd love to send you home with one. But yeah, turn to your Bibles, if you would, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Have you ever been uh, driving your Toyota Prius uh, down the road, down I-5, and seen a Lamborghini go by you? Have you ever uh, gone to a concert and been moved uh, to tears and just felt the sheer transcendence of your favorite artist playing your favorite song? Youths, and I'm looking at some of you, have you ever uh, been watching uh, another fellow teen playing a video game and just annihilating the competition in epic fashion that you can appreciate having played that same game for yourself for hundreds of hours, but not with quite the same level of success? Or foodies, have you ever eaten at a high-priced a fancy restaurant or just been into the home of an Epicurean wizard and, and had a meal that just knocked your socks off. Well, sadly, I'm not Oprah Winfrey, and so I don't have keys of Lamborghinis under everyone's chairs uh, or even gift cards to Roberto's across the street. So if that's where you thought I was going, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, but what I do have for you and for us today is something uh, much greater as we consider the, the superiority of Jesus today. And that is the primary theme of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus and of the new covenant in his blood over all preceding elements and representatives of the old covenant. Throughout this letter, which reads largely like a sermon, the author pastor invites his readers to consider how Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He establishes a better and lasting covenant he is the better and all-sufficient sacrifice, and so on. He's just better in every way and respect. So today we're going to consider Jesus and how he is greater than Moses. That'll be the first part. In our second part, we're going to consider our heavenly calling as it relates to the greatness of Jesus. And that's where the questions that I asked in our introduction will come into play and make a little bit more sense. So again, let's turn to Hebrews 3. Before we do that, just take a moment to pray again. And actually, I'm going to be just weird if you join me. If you have your physical Bible, and I suppose your phone too, take it, spin it 180 degrees. This is what I do sometimes at home, just because it's a way to say like, yep, without your help, God, it's like reading this thing upside down. So I need your help. So if you want to join me that way, go for it. Father, your word is living and active. It's beautiful sweeter than honey. It is a delight to our souls, and though it is simple enough for a child to read, there are just beauties and truths and just even the application to our lives where we very much need your Spirit's help. So we don't come proudly uh, thinking that we can just read English words and know everything. We just confess that we need your help, and so we do ask for that now. Please um, help us to not just read, but as James says, to actually go away changed, uh, having looked into this um, law of God and it's all, its all its brilliance. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, we're going to read our whole passage for today in one shot. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor 
than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So if we're going to consider Jesus, that's the sermon series title, uh, and that's our kind of key idea for today as well. If we're going to consider him the apostle and the high priest of our confession and how he is greater than Moses, it'd be good to remind, remind ourselves of who this Moses fellow is. He was perhaps the greatest leader in the Old Testament. He first appeared on the pages of Scripture as a helpless infant rescued from certain slaughter after being scooped out of a basket out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up in Pharaoh's household, but eventually had to flee to Midian to save his own life. He went from palace to pasture and was a shepherd in Midian. It likely seemed as if he would spend the rest of his days as a leader of sheep until God called him through a burning bush, and he told him that he was sending him out. In apostolic fashion, that's what it is to be an apostle, is one who is sent and sent out to deliver and lead the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. So there was this apostolic element to Moses' life and ministry. And as many of us know, Israel was all often uh, faithless. They were not always faith-filled or grateful to God or to Moses. All along their journey out of Egypt and toward the promised land, they grumbled, and they worshipped other gods, and they doubted the goodness of God, resulting in an extra 40-year-long road trip through the wilderness. God's patience was sorely tested, and his wrath kindled many times, such that Moses had to step into the breach and intercede. He had to go between God and humanity, much as a high priest would. For example, in Exodus 32, I didn't fight you if you want to. You can turn there with me. It's a longer passage. In Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14, we hear of God's indignation with Israel after they made a golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. This is what we read in Exodus 32, 9 through 14. you got to find verse 9. I always need to bring my glasses. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all the land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So it's a pretty powerful example 
of how Moses acted as a high priest went between God and the people. And another example of Moses' priestly intercession can be found in Numbers 12, where Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, spoke against him and questioned his leadership. I mean, like, does God only speak to this Moses guy? I mean, he's speaking through you too, Aaron. Like, flex yourself. Like, take some, take some, uh, some leadership for yourself. And that angered God that they would go against Moses, such that Miriam's arm became leprous. Despite being personally attacked, I mean, Moses has not had an easy journey. There's been a lot of questioning along the way. And now to have your own siblings questioning your leadership, your fitness. Despite all that, Moses cried out to the Lord in verse 13 of Numbers 12 and said, Oh, Lord God, please heal her, please. And she was eventually healed. So the bottom line is that Moses is not flawless, but he was faithful. The offer to be made a great nation was there. Like, that's tempting, but he declined that. The opportunity for vengeance and vindication with his own siblings was there, but he declined that too. Like, those are tempting things. The glory of God and the preservation of God's people was his heart's desire, though. He was faithful as one sent by God out to go before the people and he was faithful as one who, on behalf of the people, went in before God. So when the author says that there is another one who is worthy of more glory than Moses, he's not putting Moses down. Moses deserves honor. He deserves admiration. He deserves emulation. That's why we'll read about him in the Hall of Faith in another several chapters in chapter 11. Moses is not being put down here but rather Christ is exalted by showing that he is even more faithful than Moses. Jesus is the apostle, sent out not just from Midian, tending sheep, but from majesty, attended to by angels. Whereas Moses rejected the treasures of Egypt and his status as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Jesus set aside the treasures of heaven and took the form of a bondservant and being forsaken as the son his being sent out was much greater, much farther, much deeper. Paul says in the oft-quoted passage of Philippians 2, 6 through 7, that though he was, Jesus, in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and to held onto, but he, he emptied himself. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And as we've already been studying in Hebrews, and we will study further in the chapters to come, Jesus is a greater and better high priest as well. He has gone into the Holy of Holies before us, not having to fear being struck down for his own sin, since he was sinless, and offering himself as the perfect sacrifice that was completely acceptable to God in our place. There are so many places in Scripture that we can turn to to see that Jesus is both Faithful high priest and perfect sacrifice, one of those being Romans 8, 34. Paul says, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He is the sacrifice. More than that, he is the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our high priest as well. To drive this point home, Moses was good, but Jesus is better. And not just better, but Jesus is the best. There's no one better coming, whereas Moses could only provide a temporal deliverance from 
physical slavery, Jesus gave a greater deliverance from the slavery to sin and Satan and from the wrath of God. Whereas Moses spoke face to face and conveyed the words of God to his people, Jesus is the very word of God incarnate in whom the Father has revealed his glory. Whereas Moses built a tabernacle for God's presence to dwell, Jesus as God came and tabernacled among us. And whereas Moses in the wilderness struck the rock in his wrath at his people's faithlessness, Jesus let the Father strike him, the rock of our salvation, for our faithlessness. Whereas Moses had to see the promised land from afar because of his sin and shortcomings, Jesus has already entered in and sat at the, down at the right hand of the Father and has made us co-heirs with him. Jesus is better than Moses, and so we rightly consider Jesus. But moving into section or, or part two here, where I'm inviting us to consider our heavenly calling. I want to build on this idea today that we consider Jesus, but I want to do that by shifting our focus slightly away from Jesus, sort of. Back to my introduction, if I were to tell you, consider Rembrandt, consider Jimi Hendrix or Bob Dylan, consider Bobby Flay, the chef, consider Frank Lloyd Wright, who's a world-renowned architect. Where does your mind go? It goes to their music or to their food, if you've gotten to taste it, or to their paintings or to their architecture. It goes to their works, the things that they have produced. One of the ways that we can most tangibly consider Jesus and invite others to consider his beauty, his worth, his greatness is to consider Jesus' works, his masterpieces, his rock anthems, his architecture. Look back at our passage today with me, and let's just condense it down. Let's kind of focus on the key words to make some connections. I'm going to skip and just kind of fly over and hit the key ones. Verse 1, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Verse 4, the builder of all things. Verse 6, and we are his house. Consider Jesus, the builder of all things, and we are his house. I have acquaintances who live in Woodenville, and they also have a very lovely second vacation home out here on Camino. So lovely that it's been pictured and featured in several architectural magazines and design magazines. So lovely that actually a clothing company has asked them several years ago, hey, could we have our models in your home just hanging out and we'll shoot photos that we can then use in our ads? And they've seen those ads as they've gone through airports. Like, hey, there's our house with the models. Like, it's that lovely. And this couple, I caught up with them on Tuesday, and they uh, shared that they've acquired about 30 acres of land on Camino um, for a third property. And on that property, they are planning to build a, a wedding venue of sorts, like to create a destination wedding uh, place that people could come and enjoy. And it'll have several buildings on it. Um, it's got like a 180-degree kind of view of the water. Uh, it's just a, a lovely piece of property. So when I asked them, well, who's their architect going to be, there was just no hesitation. Uh, it's going to be Dan at Designs Northwest down the road. That's the guy who built their vacation second home out there on Camino that's been featured in the magazines. So there's no hesitation uh, in their minds of who they're going to work with because they have experienced for themselves, personally, inside and out, the quality of his work, how he designs things. He has gained their trust 
by them experiencing his works. You and I are that house of God through whom others get to see and consider what the architect and the builder of our faith is like. You and I are that household, that family of God through whom others get to consider what the father of this household is like. It is a high calling. It's a heavy weight, but it's also part of God's beautiful and mysterious design that he manifests his glory and he invites others to consider Jesus through the beautiful and sacrificial changed lives of his church. Did you know that Christ's afflictions were lacking? Did you know that? Sounds a little heretical, right? Before you stand up and think, "Uh uh-oh, he's gone after some other religion where we need to add to Jesus' work on the cross. I'm just using Paul's own words, actually, when I say that Christ's afflictions are lacking. So let's look. I do invite you to turn because that's a wild phrase. Turn to Colossians 1, 24 and 25 with me, and we'll get a little broader context at what Paul is saying. Colossians 1, 24 through 25. This is what Paul says, Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Colossians, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There it is. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Here you have Paul the Apostle saying that something was lacking in Christ's afflictions that he had to fill up. And again, that seems to go against everything we believe about the complete sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross in our place. His resurrection from the dead is proof. That is confidence you can have Was Christ's death enough for you and all of your sin, past, present, future? Look at Christ, raised from the dead. Yes, that is God's, the Father's proof that he accepts Christ's sacrifice as the full, complete, sufficient covering for all of our sin. So what gives? Why does Paul say this? These personal sufferings that Paul speaks of are not a suffering as a payment for sin, They are the incarnated, flesh and blood, here and now, front row seat, representation of the afflictions of Christ. To make the word of God fully known, seen, felt, heard, tasted, smelled, experienced. For those of us who didn't get to see Jesus in the flesh for ourselves. That is our heavenly calling. It's a call to salvation which includes a call to discipleship, which of course includes a call to sharing Christ with others through the everyday stuff of our lives, the highs and the lows, so that they have a chance to hear and see and experience the gospel for themselves in the flesh and to put their trust in Christ for themselves. We shouldn't just be self-centered consumers of grace, but others-minded conveyors of grace too. Our text here in chapter 3 says that Jesus was counted worthy of more glory, and chapter 2 says that he was crowned with glory because he suffered the kind of death that produced life. He suffered the kind of death that was the 
foundation, to use that house analogy, that foundation for our salvation. His blood has formed the household and the family of God. Across time and place, men, women, and children from every tongue and tribe and nation. Your and my faithfulness will never be that kind of foundation. It's a one of a kind and it's so worthy of glory and of glorying and boasting in. But while our faithfulness will never be that foundation for salvation, it absolutely is an invitation to salvation. Never a foundation, absolutely an invitation. Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were to come. He was looking down the road. Our calling and our opportunity is to testify to all that has been spoken, to all that was accomplished on the cross, to testify to how God has spoken and revealed himself, not through a pillar of fire or of cloud or through a tabernacle, but through his son, the word made flesh. But we shrink back and we think there ain't no way that I've got much of anything that would point others to consider Jesus. I'm just uh, fill in the blank for how you lack and nobody should be looking at you at all to see Jesus. That's what Moses thought too. It's a good thing that God doesn't need greatness or PhDs or six-figure salaries or any of that. In fact, he often tends to use exactly the opposite of that to point others to himself, as we hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1. In Exodus 4, when Moses asked God, what am I supposed to do, God, when they ask, when they don't believe that I am has sent me? God's response is awesome. He says, Moses, what, what's that in your hand there? What do you got there? Oh, a staff? Yeah, I'll use that. Throw that down. And God turned it as one of his many signs into a serpent uh, that, God, that Moses was to use when he spoke to Israel and to Pharaoh. There is nowhere we need to arrive to, no credential we need to achieve, no age we need to reach, no relationship status we need to obtain, no distance from our last sin or shortfall that we need to have before we are able to invite others to consider Jesus. If he lives in you, his grace has already changed you and is already changing you. So rather than hide and not put ourselves out there, we need to step into pursuing lives that do make much of him, that invite others to, yeah, look and see me, but ultimately see Jesus. With what a strong leader Moses was, with how many Israelites came to him for leadership, with how many of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible he wrote, it would be easy to forget and maybe not even know that he had a significant speech impediment. Maybe he was a stutterer. After God had given Moses the sign with the staff, Moses still tried, like, okay, that, that's great, but he still tried to step aside and, and bow out, as you probably know. So we read in Exodus 4, verses 10 through 14. This is where Moses was pushing back on God and looking for an out. Exodus 4, 10 through 14. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, 
Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God loves to use weakness and trial to make much of his goodness. And I've gotten to experience some of that this past week. On Wednesday, after 16 years uh, with Housing Hope, where I've worked, I, along with 25 others, were said we have a week to go, and then we're being laid off. And uh, that's a step they're taking to try to financially heal the organization. So my last day is this coming Thursday the 2nd. And so God has put something due in my hand. I have a layoff. Wasn't expecting it, but it's there. And so now I'm thinking, how might we use this, God? How might we use this? Uh, as leadership shared the news with me, thankfully God was just with me, and it was not the news I was expecting. I knew there would be some changes coming. But when they said, and, and that includes you, Nate, I, the response from my HR person was actually, I wish you'd be more angry, because that would make this easier. Like, I know you guys are making hard decisions. I can't be. You know who I am and how I've been, so I can't be angry. I'm taking every opportunity possible to share with people that, though I am a bit surprised, don't understand the decision, um, that Jesus of Nazareth has been our provider, my family's provider, and he isn't going to stop now. Most of those whom I work with don't have hope in Christ, so as they express their appreciation for anything good that they've experienced from me, uh, I am doing my darndest to make sure to point back to the builder of all things. I tried to... Just, I'm, I'm the kind of guy I like to just slip out the back door, uh, but several were insisting, like, nope, we need to have some sort of lunch or something this coming week. So I I'm, I'm, didn't want to be so stubborn to say, no, 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 no. So I'm like, okay, fine. This day, this time, that'll work great. And again, that's where I'm thinking, all right, this is an opportunity. What are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> so I do welcome your prayers uh, on Wednesday around 11 because I do want to just share with everyone, like, if there is anything that you have appreciated, Let's be really clear where that's coming from. Uh, that's coming from Jesus living in me. The uh, HR person that was one of the ones to deliver the news stopped by this last week, a day or two later, and just said, I, and she didn't look great, as I can imagine, having to deliver that news to 26 people. And she uh, just said, how are you doing, Nate? I said, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing well. And she's like, how, how can you be doing well? I said, Candace, as you know, I've, I've shared my hope in Christ with you, but let me preach a little bit more. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's how I'm doing well. It's not me. It's Jesus living in me. And I was like, I just want to put a little shoe in your pebble there, Candace, so that at some point you got to look at that and think about who is this Jesus person. And she said, you've been putting pebbles in my shoe, Nate. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that. So use what God has put in our hands. We don't need strength. We can use weakness. A quick word and an important distinction that can never be said too often. This word faithful comes up four, at least four times in our text. And it's always good to be reminded, especially as I'm challenging you to live lives and strive and work to be faithful with where God has you in life and with what God has put in your hand. It's important to not confuse faithfulness with fruitfulness. 
We know that in our heads, you've heard it before, but it's always good to hear that in our hearts uh, repeatedly. God only calls you and I to be faithful and to leave the fruitfulness to God. That's a burden that we are not called to bear, and and ultimately it's not an outcome we can guarantee anyway. Fruitfulness, that is. I am comforted by verse 16 of chapter 3 here in Hebrews, uh, which Derek will cover on uh, probably next week. It asks the question, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Some leader, I mean, how many thousands of people lost their lives under his watch? Couldn't he have led better? Couldn't he have been more fruitful? And even more comforting still, we read in Matthew 28, 16 through 17, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. This is after his resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. Jesus himself, having risen from the grave, present before them with nail-pierced hands and a resurrected body, didn't convince or persuade everyone of his glory and worth. Focus on faithfulness with what's in your hand, pointing others back to the builder, the apostle, the high priest of our faith, and leave the fruitfulness to God. In closing, God in our text today is calling us to consider Jesus. We do that by opening his word regularly and reading about him from cover to cover. And we also see him on the pages of each other's lives. I'm reminding you of our calling to display faithfully, which includes a call to shine, to be brilliant, to strive in a sense, yes, to draw attention to yourself as Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Be the best student you can be. Be the best athlete, the best mother, the best coworker. And when you're not the best, repent. Repent well. Ask forgiveness quickly. The world is watching. Your brothers and sisters in the church are watching. Your family is watching you and your life. And considering Jesus and making conclusions about him based on what they see in you and me. His handiwork. Because we are his house and his household. Pursue faithfulness with the strength God supplies, which includes owning and fessing up to those times where we're not faithful. We can get back to faithfulness just by owning up to that. Robert Murray McShane was a great pastor from Scotland. He only lived 29 years and he died in 1843. He preached his last sermon of his life in a place called Broughty Ferry. His text was Isaiah 60 verse 1 that day. That text reads, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. After preaching that, he went home to bed because he'd caught a fever, and that fever was what took his life just a few days later. And after his death, they found a letter under his pillow from someone who had been there at Broughty Ferry and heard him preach. And the letter read this, just a few sentences. Dear Mr. McShane, I heard you preach at Barati Ferry last Sabbath evening, and your sermon brought me to Christ. It was not anything you said, but it, was what it, but it was what you were and as you preached. For as you preached, I thought I had never seen the beauty of holiness 
as I saw it on you. You were talking about the glory of God resting on the Savior, and I saw the Savior's glory resting on you. That brought me to Christ. I love that story. It's not even often what we do, but it's just how we do it and how we show up that shines most brightly to others. We're going to celebrate communion together in a few moments. If your hope is in Christ, it's an opportunity to consider Jesus, our faithful apostle and high priest. And it's an opportunity to ask God what he has put in your hand, what experiences or skills or relationships or positions he's orchestrated in your life to point to what a wonderful builder of all things he is, so that those who don't yet know Jesus could join you and me at his table, celebrating the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let's pray.